Thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Centre for Catholic Studies at Durham University in the UK, a centre for Catholic theology in the Public Academy. For more information, go to centreforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following paper was presented in September 2019 as part of a conference on Anglican-Catholic relations marking the 450th anniversary of the 1569 Northern Uprising. The paper is by Sister Professor Susan Wood. It is entitled Learning to Walk the Way Together, Anglican-Catholic Relations in Light of the Third Anglican-Roman Catholic International Commission, and it is followed by a response by the Reverend Canon Dr. Peter Sedgwick. The 2017 Agreed Statement of the Third Anglican Roman Catholic International Commission, known as ARCIC III, uh, uh, issued this document, Walking Together on the Way, Learning to be Church, Local, Regional, uh, Universal. It's the first document to come out of that group since 2004, when the second phase of ARCIC produced the Agreed Statement, Mary, Grace, and Hope in Christ. It is also the first international ecumenical document to adopt the methodology of receptive ecumenism um, developed by the British theologian Paul Murray. Uh, as such, I consider this document to be an instance of a turn in ecumenical theology to constructive theology rather than simply comparative theology although it also contains strong elements of comparative theology evident in the use of parallel columns in the document to set comparative Anglican and Roman Catholic structures side by side. It moves beyond simple comparison insofar as the guiding question is what Catholics and Anglicans can learn from each other's local, regional, and universal structures that would enhance each other's polity. While the document reiterates the goal of ecumenism, namely the restoration of complete communion in faith and sacramental life and visible unity and full ecclesial communion, the commission's emphasis in walking together on the way is not so much a resolution of differences between each communion in order to achieve unity but an exercise in learning from each other's support and example in or to attend to its own structure and instruments. By doing this, it is thought that the structures and instruments of communion will draw each communion closer together and thereby contribute to the unity of the one church of Christ. This method represents a radical novelty in ecumenical theology that remains somewhat unarticulated in the document. In adopting Murray's methodology of, re of, of receptive ecumenism, it refers explicitly to an ecumenical gift exchange, which in itself is not new in ecumenism. For example, Lumen Gentium 13 speaks of um, the mutual enrichment occurring where legitimate diversity enhances Catholicity. Uh, it, 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 the quote is, by virtue of this Catholicity, 
The individual parts bring their own gifts to other parts and to the whole church. In 2018, Pope John Paul II and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Robert uh, Runcie, affirmed the ecumenical journey is not only about the removal of obstacles, but also about the sharing of gifts. John Paul II, in his 1995 encyclical letter on ecumenism, Ut Unum Sint, stated that dialogue is not simply the exchange of ideas, in some ways it is an exchange of gifts. Thus the idea of ecumenism as an exchange of gifts is not new, but this is the first international dialogue to intentionally structure a document on the basis of this methodology. Receptive ecumenism asks not what we might give the other, but what we might receive from the other that might be overlooked or undeveloped in our own tradition. In addition to arising from the notion of a gift exchange, it has um, roots in Pope John Paul II's request to other traditions to help reimagine the practice of the papacy, as well as in Pope Francis' comments on learning from one another and reaping what the Spirit has sold sown in them, and in Archbishop Justin Welby's allusion to receptive ecumenism in his sermon at Westminster Abbey in 2016 on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the Anglican Center in Rome. Given this background, the time was ripe to try it out in a major ecumenical statement. What is new in this attempt is that the conversion of the idea of an exchange of gifts into an ecumenical methodology, which first identifies those gifts and then asks how they can be appropriated by the ecumenical partner to put its own house in better order and thereby accomplish its own interior renewal. As the decree on ecumenism affirms, every renewal of the church essentially consists in an increase of fidelity to her own calling, which explains the dynamism of the movement toward unity. The church is summoned to that continual reformation of which she always has need, insofar as she is a human institution here on earth. This church renewal has ecumenical importance insofar as there can be no ecumenism without conversion. This conversion is not only interior in the spiritual lives of Christians, but is also institutional in the reformation and purification of ecclesial structures, for the church is at one time, one and the same time holy and always in need of purification, and it pursues unceasingly penance and renewal. I love this statement from Lumen Gentium, which actually, um, if you read it in the Latin, uh, rings with the echoes of Simul Justus et Peccator um, in terms of the Reformation. The radical novelty of the methodology of its receptive ecumenism to which walking together does not allude is that ecumenical rapprochement is achieved not in terms of theology, even in terms of a theology of collegiality, primacy, or the papacy, but in terms of structures and processes. These are external, observable phenomena, not ideas or spirituality or even theology. 
Ecumenical rapprochement in this instance is achieved practically, not theoretically. In the end, emphasis lies on the instruments of communion, an idea originating in Anglican usage rather than with communion itself. The instruments then are intended to function as a means to a deeper and richer reality of communion. The danger, or at least the challenge here, is that the juridical and the political may eclipse the theological and the sacramental basis for communion as the mediation of communion shifts from the personal, the sacramental, and the representational within a symbolic universe to the legal, the institutional, and the organizational. Evidence for this lies in the allusion to the problem experienced in the Anglican experience of, quote, the tendency in some Anglican provinces towards an oppositional style of debate when that is not suited to the discernment of teaching, especially in relation to ethics, end of quote, number 100. A challenge posed by the methodology of treating the topic in terms of three levels of ecclesiality, namely the local, the regional, and worldwide, with parallel columns for both traditions, is that it becomes difficult to adequately address the interpenetration and interrelationship of the various levels, both theologically and practically. In walking together, the biblical and theological material appears in sections two and three. Baptism and Eucharist are preeminently sacraments of communion, the former identified as the basis of the instinct for the faith, census fidei, fidelium, that in turn becomes the basis for broad participation by all the faithful in the structures of communion and decision-making. Instruments of Catholicity serve unity within a legitimate diversity that embodies enculturation. The section on the Eucharist emphasizes its ecclesial and communal dimensions. The communion established within these sacraments is described as not only local, but translocal. However, these sections stand alone and are not integrated into sections four, five, and six, where the document turns to local, regional, and worldwide structures of the church. So it's, it's like we've been there, done that, and now we move on to the next structure. In other words, the sacramental basis of the church remains somewhat separate from the structural and institutional aspect of the church. Walking together is a rich resource for identifying areas in which Catholics can learn from Anglicans and vice versa. The main areas of mutual learning for Catholics include greater participation of the laity in decision-making in the church, inclusion of women in the diaconate, a fuller implementation of licensed lay pastoral assistance, the priestly ordination of mature married men, very probati, the authorization of lay people to preach, greater integration between national regional bishops' conferences and the Senate of Bishops, greater subsidiarity without recourse to Rome on more issues, a more liberal implementation of canonical provision for regional and national synodal bodies, including laity, religious, and clergy, and the possibility of giving laity, religious, and clergy deliberative vote in many manners matters taken up by provincial or regional councils. 
The document observes that Catholic bishops at times experience a lack of robust and transparent debate on disputed issues for fear of presenting less than a united face to the world and have a tendency to defer too readily to Rome rather than exercising their own proper authority. We can all see this as we read the tablet. Reciprocally, Anglicans could profit from the model of Roman Catholic practices of ecclesial discernment, a greater commitment to a universal identity, communion-wide standards for the discernment and theological training of deacons and priests in new contexts, a corporate sense of the episcopacy, an instrument that can neither that can either preserve communion or judge whether a difference is in fact church dividing. Walking together mentions the benefits of a common calendar of saints, a common catechism, a common canon law, and a particular exercise of Episcopal collegiality, the use of at least one common modern Eucharistic prayer across the communion, and the model of smaller, more frequent synods of bishops. It suggests that Anglicans might explore the role of the See of Canterbury and its archbishop as a focus of unity. So these paragraphs just kind of collect all the things we can learn from one another. However, these partial lists do show that each communion has much it can learn from the other, and that this mutual learning is possible because of the mutual respect engendered by decades of ecumenical dialogue that have broken down hostilities um, and suspicions between them. The question remains, though, how do these mutual learnings, this exchange of ecumenical gifts, contribute not only to the improvement and growth of each communion, but to their growth in communion with each other, aside from the fact that growth in these areas will make each one look more like the other? The model of receptive communion, I fear, uh, falls short of resolving the thorny church-dividing issues. And I, for one, am not ready to give up on the possibility of arriving at a mutual recognition of ministry, a shared Eucharistic doctrine, and a Roman Catholic recognition of Anglican churches as um, ecclesial communities that are properly churches. What I think we both need are methods for discernment. Anglicans and Catholics share a common need for methods of discernment within their respective ecclesial structures. A more robust process of discernment would be a significant instrument of communion in addition to the instruments cited in the text. While Anglicans have a more robust process of decision-making at the provincial level than Catholics do in their Episcopal conferences, both are hampered by inadequate procedures within these structures, Anglicans by oppositional debate and Catholics by an inadequate inclusion of the non-ordained, particularly women. Consequently, instruments of communion lie not only on the various levels of ecclesial life that structure the document, namely local, regional, and worldwide, but also the processes that operate within these levels in terms of procedures for consultation and discernment and the checks and balances that keep one level of ecclesial life 
from obliterating the legitimate diversity and prerogatives of other levels. A helpful addition to the present document would be a section on how exactly a local church, province, or Episcopal conference, or a worldwide synod of bishops actually engages in discernment. Short of this, one is left with a parliamentary procedure where there are winners and losers rather than genuine consensus and a process that is more political than it is spiritual. In reading the council journals of theologians like Henri de Lubac or Yves Congar, who were periti at the council, one is struck by how messy that whole process was. The struggles to arrive at conciliar texts that would eventually be, impro- be approved with significant consensus were rife with ideological conflicts, most notably those between the members of the preparatory commissions who prepared the first schema that were subsequently sent back to commissions for reworking by the council fathers and a more progressive group. The latter abandoned a classicist worldview in favor of an ecclesial renewal that updated the church, a journamento, with reference to historical studies that reclaimed a more distant past, ressourcement, while engaging the present world. The scope of the council was immense, a total of 2,860 council fathers attending part or all of the four periods, accompanied by a secretary or theologian or both, in addition to the 484 theological experts appointed by either uh, John XXIII or Paul VI, and an additional 50 to more than 100 observers and guests. As walking together on the way observes that with the number of bishops in the Roman Catholic Church alone, now over 5,100, the future practicality of ecumenicals, councils, is a real question. As anyone who has participated in ecumenical dialogue and the production of an agreed statement can attest, that too is a process fraught with conflict more often intra-ecclesial than between dialogue partners, false starts, and the asceticism of communal editing. Yet, as different as an ecumenical council is from the production of an ecumenical text, both in scale, doctrinal significance, and authority of the two processes, what they share in common is the high degree of consensus with which they present their conclusions. It is not insignificant to ask what contributes to consensus in these processes. This includes a free exchange of ideas, including ideas that may not represent the status quo, allowing time for consensus to emerge, and broad consultation, including the contribution of voices that are not official participants. Allowance for legitimate diversity within a broader unity and freedom for creativity. These count among the instruments of communion advocated by walking together. A more intentional communal process of discernment within committees and councils would be a helpful addition. These might include identifying the values underlying hotly disputed differences, asking who benefits and who suffers from a particular decision, and making time for faith sharing and prayer especially shared by those who differ politically 
and theologically. There are some um, texts within this document that I think need are in need of correction, um, addition, or nuancing. And I will just uh, quickly go through these. In terms of the section on the Eucharist as the principal manifestation of the church, I'm missing an allusion to Sacrosanctum Concilium number 41, which states that the principal manifestation of the church consists in the full active participation of all God's people in the same liturgical celebrations, especially in the same Eucharist, in one prayer at one altar at which the bishop presides, surrounded by his college of priests and by his ministers. Now, what the document includes is that the principle that uh, as the Eucharist celebrated in communion with the bishop is a manifestation of the church. But we need to add that the bishop is surrounded by his people and all his ministers because um, it emphasizes, um, because there's a danger of correlating ordained ministry with church structures in an analysis that may become too clerical if you leave out the people. Um, such a correlation needs to account for all the people of God and the subject of the Eucharist as the entire assembly, inclusive of the ordained minister who presides, both in the name of Christ and in the name of the church. This provides a theological basis for the participation of the lay faithful in decision-making in the church. So I think the text's aim, which is the latter, the participation of all in decision-making, would be um, increased if the theology of the Eucharist was more encompassing of all the people. There's a section on the question of temporal and ontological priority of the of, uh, whether it's the universal church is the temporal and ontological priority of the local churches and regional bodies or the latter. Um, this whole section was curious in that it was all raised in terms of question marks, which tell me as a suspicious reader that um, there was difference among the uh, dialogue members, and therefore they didn't um, come out with a statement, but they only presented it in terms of questions. Um, I think that's regrettable. It shows an internal Catholic conflict, I think, in the commission. Um, but Lumen Gentium 23 expresses this coherence in stating that particular churches are formed in the likeness of the universal church and that in and from these particular churches there exists the one unique Catholic church. And it's that, in, that reciprocal um, coherence that is important. In terms of the uh, relationship of the Bishop of Rome to the College of Bishops, um, the description of the limitation of the separate, and the text uses the word separate actions of the Bishop of Rome, is too limited. First, it's unclear what separate actions refer to, for the Bishop of Rome always acts implicitly as head of the College of Bishops and explicitly in communion with it, as Karl Rahner has um, demonstrated decades ago. Um, the list cited in, in section 134 ignores his exercise of ordinary teaching authority in encyclicals, apostolic constitutions, 
motu proprio teaching, and apostolic exhortations. If the section is in fact referring to his exercise of infallibly defining doctra, doctrine ex cathedra, this is not clearly stated. And um, then I think there is an unfortunate conflation of the notion of a universal church with a worldwide church. It uses the text speaks of universal church slash worldwide or vice versa. In speaking of church structures as distinguished from a theological concept of a universal church, it is best not to identify the worldwide church with a universal church. The worldwide church is not the same as a universal church, for the universal church has no existence apart from its instantiation in the local church, while the worldwide church does not exist in each local church. I tell my students, you can't get on an airplane and fly to the universal church, because um, it only exists in the particular. The worldwide church is a communion of local churches, those churches also experiencing communion regionally. The equation of a universal church with a worldwide church within walking together um, is thus re uh, regrettable. One of the difficulties common to most international ecumenical dialogue statements is that they generally liberally reference prior international dialogues, yet they ignore more regional ecumenical statements, especially those with other communions. This mirrors the reception process of such statements. For example, the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity does not respond to national dialogues, although they are often received with interest and appreciation. And I don't mean received officially. They get mailed copies, okay? I'm not using received in a technical sense here. Um, obviously, a small staff cannot do so given the potentially large number of such statements. Nevertheless, the spirit of a methodology of receptive ecumenism seemingly would welcome contributions from such documents to the study at hand. Thus, it is surprising that the bibliography accompanying Walking Together does not cite round 10 of the U.S. Lutheran uh, Catholic Dialogue, the Church's koinonia, its structures and ministries, which, like Walking Together, is organized around local, regional, and worldwide expressions of the Church. Although not expressly using the methodology of receptive ecumenism, the U.S. document argues that the asymmetry in what the two communions hold to be the basic unit of the church, namely the diocese under the mystery of a, of a bishop for Catholics and the local congregation where the world word is, is um, purely preached and the sacraments rightly celebrated for Lutherans, are complementary. So these... Um, communities do not exist in isolation uh, from each other, but are interdependent with regional groupings. Um, I just think um, to, to reference similar topics done in, in terms of dialogue with other groups than Anglicans and also regional Documents. There's also another uh, a Finnish document that came out on Eucharist ministry and church. That, th that this is a cross-fertilization needed in documents today.
So I think that as helpful as uh, the methodology of receptive ecumenism is, there is a need for a constructive theology that uh, extends beyond comparative structures and mutual borrowings. And one of these methods that I would like to refer to first is a meth- what I call a methodi- methodology of correlation. Rather than comparing analogous structures side by side, a theology of correlation correlates one structure with another. A particularly fruitful cor- correlation is that found between ministry and its corresponding ecclesial expression. So, for example, um, at the congregational level, you have a minister that serves the congregation, the pastor, priest. At the, level, at the regional level, you have the bishop and the diocese. And at a worldwide uh, level, you have, in Catholicism, the papacy. Now, while the U.S. dialogue initiated this in churches as Koine of Salvation, it did not develop its full potential, partially because in addition to the correlation of ministry to church, elements outside that correlation need to be brought to bear on that correlation. Um, In the case of the correlation between recognition of ministry and the recognition of another ecclesial community as church in the proper sense, both underexploited resources in the tradition and new ecumenical developments contribute to new possibilities for ecumenical progress. The correlation between ministry and levels of ecclesial expression represents a powerful basis for an imperfect recognition of Anglican ministers by Catholics. In the past, recognition of Anglican ministry was withheld by Catholics on the basis of what was held to be an insufficient intention within the Anglican ordination rite, namely to ordain priests who would offer sacrifice. The evaluation of ministry was predicated on sacramental grounds in terms of the nature of sacramental ministry. This in turn carried implications for an evaluation of the Eucharistic reality affected by that ministry, as well as the churchly character of an Anglican community. The efficacy of ministry in serving the communion of a community was not a consideration. Aside from a re-evaluation of Leo XIII's declaration regarding Anglican orders, a re-evaluation necessary today in the light of contemporary Eucharistic theology, two more contemporary developments suggest that the all-or-nothing approach of the past with respect to Anglican orders cannot be maintained today. Even without a re-evaluation of the conclusions of Apostolice Curie in the light of contemporary Anglican liturgy and theology, both the theology articulated by Unitatis Redintegratio, the decree on ecumenism, and the consensus achieved in the joint declaration on the doctrine of justification imply a more nuanced approach to the recognition of ministry, church, and sacrament not only with respect to Anglicans, but also for other ecclesial communities issuing from the Reformation. Unitatis Redintegratio's evaluation of the liturgical life of separated communities begins with an affirmation of the sacramental bond of unity 
um, existing among all who have been reborn by baptism. But the document adds that baptism is only a beginning, an inauguration directed toward the fullness of life in Christ and the completeness of unity which Eucharistic communion gives. Nevertheless, although Unitatis Redintegratio 22 states that these communities have not retained the authentic and full reality of the Eucharistic ministry, especially because the sacrament of orders is lacking, that uses the word defectum. I'm not going to go there, but we need to not translate defectum as lacking, but as deficient. Um, it goes on to affirm that these communities, when they commemorate his death and resurrection in the Lord's Supper, profess that it signifies life in communion with Christ. And this must be read in connection with Unitatis Redintegratio three which states that our separated brothers and sisters um, also celebrate many sacred actions of the Christian religion. These most certainly can engender a life of grace in ways that vary according to the condition of each church or community and must be held capable of giving access to that communion in which is salvation. And then it concludes that the Spirit uses these communities as means of salvation. Now, this was written in Vatican II, but we have yet to mine the significance of it. The, the Unitatis Redintegratio 22 statement that, all the, that although the ecclesial community separated from the Catholic Church have not retained the full reality of Eucharistic ministry, the decree refrains from using juridical language and it opts for the language of fullness which admits of degrees rather than a binary presence or lack of presence. Neither the Eucharist nor the ministry can simply be lacking because they both function as means of grace within these communities in keeping these communities in the faith, faith of the gospel, in engendering a life of grace, and in giving access to that communion which is salvation. Theological reflection has yet to grapple sufficiently with the implications of a shift from the metaphysical categories of traditional sacramental theology with its accompanying juridical category of validity to a perspective that discerns a sacramental reality through its efficacy rather than vice versa. From my comment yesterday, it is a move from the deductive to the inductive is what's needed here. Yet Joseph Cardinal Rossinger, when prefect of the Congregation of the Faith, wrote in 1993 to the Bavarian Lutheran Bishop Johannes Hanselmann, he said, I, I count among the most important results of the ecumenical dialogues the insight that the issue of the Eucharist cannot be narrowed to the problem of validity. Even a theology oriented to the concept of succession, such as that which holds in the Catholic and Orthodox Church, need not in any way deny the salvation-granting presence of the Lord in a Lutheran Lord's Supper. 
If the issue of the Eucharist cannot be narrowed to a problem of validity, neither can the issue of recognition of ministry. Second, the consensus reached in the JDDJ likewise implies an efficacy of ministry. It essentially affirms that the ministry in these communities has kept their members in justifying faith. If there were not efficacy in preaching the gospel, the Catholic Church could never have arrived at a consensus statement, the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification with the Lutheran World Federation in 1999. Originally a bilateral ecumenical consensus, the JDDJ now expresses a shared understanding of justification on the part of five Christian world communions. The Anglican Consultative Council adopted Resolution 16.17 on the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification and presented the text to Reverend Dr. Martin Junge, General Secretary of the Lutheran World Federation, and Bishop Brian Farrell on October 31, 2017. The present official teaching of the church is that a valid ministry There can be too much emphasis. Um, the present official teaching of the church is that valid ministry in apostolic succession confers the identity of church on an ecclesial body in the absence one is left with an ecclesial community. The question of the mutual recognition of ministry raises the question whether recognition of ministry should in some measure follow upon recognition of churches rather than precede it. That is, if a ministry maintains a community in the marks of the church, that is the sign of the existence of an authentic ministry. An imperfect communion among churches would correlate with an imperfect recognition of ministry. Ecumenically, this would mean that an acknowledgement of an authentic ministry would depend on the recognition of the churchly character of that ministry's community and not vice versa. <coughs> this would lead to a discernment of the elements of the Church of Christ outside the visible boundaries of the Catholic Church and the fruit and work of the Holy Spirit within that community. There would no doubt be additional criteria for full recognition of ministry in terms of understanding its function with respect to the proclamation of the gospel, to its role in the sacraments, <coughs> and to its service to the apostolicity of the church. Nevertheless, the recognition of the churchly character of the community would play a much larger role in the recognition of ministry than it presently does. <coughs> the central idea here is that for Catholics, there needs to be a correlation between recognition of ministry 
and the recognition of an ecclesial community of a church that is much more nuanced and discerning of the work of the spirit within a community than simply concluding to the existence of a church from the presence of an Episcopal ministry in historic apostolic succession. Second, this correlation admits of degrees of fullness within an ecclesiology. Sorry, the percussion is getting a bit restive. <laughs> Second, uh, furthermore, when am I speaking? Okay, we're going to try this one again. We're, we're getting close to the end. Uh, furthermore, the methodology of discernment becomes much more inductive than deductive as one looks for the fruitfulness of ministry as evidence of an authentic ministry. The very term recognition potentially poses a stumbling block in these discussions, for it has assumed in an official and juridical status accompanied by the recognition that either one recognizes another ministry or one does not. Such ministry either validly confects the Eucharist or it does not. Furthermore, such recognition is imparted by an official act of the highest church authority. If communion is imperfect and recognition is partial, what can be done in the interim? I suggest that ecumenical dialogue and church leaders adopt the language of acknowledgement. If one can acknowledge the efficacy of keeping a community in faith regarding the doctrine of justification and can acknowledge the life of grace emanating from the liturgical life of a community thanks to its sacramental ministers, then our communion will be on the road to an official recognition that may result on the basis of this prior acknowledgement. This acknowledgement provides the basis for increased collaboration between diverse ecclesial ministries, not only within a particular ecclesial communion, but between Anglicans and Catholics. What neither walking together nor church's koinonia of salvation adequately probe are the implications of the interdependence of the various ministries and expressions of the church. The danger in too structural an approach is to consider the various structures in isolation from one another and thereby miss how a lower level informs a higher level. In Catholicism, the direction has generally been the inverse, the higher level trickling down to lower levels. Yet when Vatican II defined the authority of the bishop as proper, ordinary, and immediate, Although its exercise is ultimately controlled by the supreme authority of the church and can be confined uh, within certain limits should the usefulness of the church and the faithful require this, that's Lumen Gentium 27. 
It affirmed that a bishop's authority derives from his episcopal ordination and that it is not simply a jurisdictional delegation from the Pope. Bishops exercise a power which they possess in their own right. <coughs> the sacramental understanding of a bishop as intrinsically in communion with other bishops and in a special way with the Bishop of Rome, but nevertheless possessing an authority that is properly and immediately his, provides the basis for diversity in the church at local and regional levels, once again appealing to the correlation between ministry and church already developed. Because of time, I'm not going to develop my next um, section, which is that the methodology of differentiating consensus, which I think is another tool in the toolbox for dialogue today. It's the method that was used in the JDDJ. And so I won't move to the conclusion. The methodology of receptive ecumenism is a welcome addition to ecumenical methodology, but it needs to be developed beyond a comparison of analogous church structures and instruments of communion to include receptive learnings from the other dialogues in which the two communions are also engaged. The focus of walking together on the very idea of communion while picking up a central theme in ecumenical dialogue today does not extend beyond a comparative and contrastive study of ministerial and ecclesial structures to address potential communion across these structures with the dialogue partner. While recognition of an imperfect communion between Christians and their communities has been recognized since Vatican II, Communion among the ministers of these traditions, a communion that models the imperfect communion between Christians and their communities, has not been explored in official dialogues. Receptive ecumenism joined with other methodologies such as that of differentiating consensus and a methodology of correlation of ministry and ecclesial structures opens a way forward to overcome past divisions. The theme of communion allows for degrees of relationship and recognition. New categories of recognition are needed, such as acknowledgement of ministry, that allow for a recognition on the way in anticipation of a later, more definitive and juridical recognition. It is past time for recognition of ministry to be all or nothing. So a new category is needed to reflect the partiality of imperfect communion. At the same time, recognition of ministry and communities as churches is intimately connected with a recognition of their Eucharistic reality as the sacrament that, with baptism, is constitutive of a church defined as a Eucharistic community. While complexifying the correlation envisioned in this proposal, clearly ecumenical progress on church, ministry, and Eucharist must proceed in tandem. Contemporary ecumenical theology possesses an increasing number of tools in its toolbox with which to address church-dividing issues. Walking together on the way helpfully shows the potential contribution of receptive ecumenism. Nevertheless, it backs away from tackling church-dividing issues 
that might move forward if combined with other ecumenical methodologies. Thank you. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to respond to Sister Professor Susan Wood, who's a distinguished ecumenism with her book, One Baptism, her writings on Roman Catholic and Lutheran ecclesiology, and her long commitment to ecumenical dialogue. In the 1980s, I worked as a theologian for all the churches, including, of course, the Anglican and the Roman Catholic in the northeast of England, which is the region that Durham is set in. And due to this role, I was appointed to the Church of England Faith and Order Group with its secretary, Dame Mary Tanner, and John Hind, not yet a bishop, as its members. And in the early 1980s, Ferwick experienced the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith's rejection of Archic I's document on the Eucharist. Archic itself came to Durham to the cathedral in August 1984, chaired by the Dean Peter Belts, and held a public meeting. I remember the chastened feel of Archic after the CDF response to the final report. And that is almost exactly 35 years ago in Durham. In a similar way, the Archic II text, Life in Christ, which of course had Professor O'Donovan as one of its consultants in 1994, was eclipsed by Veritatis Splendor in the eyes of the Vatican, as I argued in a private paper for Archic III last year. Life in Christ stepped into a Roman Catholic academic debate about the nature of moral absolutes, natural law, sexual and medical ethics. It is striking that the CDF has never made any comment on the report whatsoever, and I suspect it was seen as threatening the coherence of Catholic moral theology. I spent much time away from formal ecumenism from 1990 to 2004, working instead in social justice in the areas of economic and criminal justice policy, and again, a strong relationship with the Catholic Church through the Bishops' Conference and Caritas UK. My appointment to Archit III in 2011 surprised me, but it was to prove very creative. In particular, there was the work of Professor Murray in Receptive Ecumenism and the World Council of Churches texts, Baptism, Eucharist and Ministry, 1984, followed, of course, by the Church Towards a Common Vision, 2013, henceforth TCV. And I'd like to pay tribute to the work of Dame Mary Tanner, who is with us today, in enabling that dialogue multilateral dialogue to take part. There was also, of course, as Professor Wood has said, the American Lutheran Catholic dialogue. And so my response to Professor Wood is very simple. My question is whether, and it is a question, is whether ecumenism has changed its tone in the 21st century. Between the 1980s and the early 1990s and the writing of Walking Together in the Way from 2011, 
something large seems to have happened, something significant. And what I want to suggest is that walking together in the way is not a backing away from a commitment to organic and full unity, but rather that the church towards common vision and walking together represent a sea change in the nature of dialogue. We have perhaps moved into a different era, and it is this climate which receptive ecumenism addresses so well. In the words of walking together, receptive learning suggests a positive openness to study and evaluation of what seems to work in another tradition with a view to adapting it in one's own. And the overall aim is, to quote, to find a way of furthering the mission of the church in its own tradition, the preface, paragraph, uh, page 8. And what I want to suggest, what I think is genuinely new in ecumenical dialogue, is that there is an explicit missiological strategy that the dominant theme in ecumenism now becomes missiological and pneumatological, and that is not the case for the early documents of Archic. So let me develop this theme, and then in conclusion, I will make one or two direct references to the questions raised by Professor Wood in her helpful paper. So let me then substantiate my argument. Let me look first at TCV, towards a common vision. In paragraphs 28 to 30, it asserts that legitimate diversity in the life of the communion is a gift from the Lord, citing 1 Corinthians 12, Acts 2 and 4, and of course Acts 15. TCV's emphasis throughout the text when it is talking about legitimate diversity is pneumatological and missiological. The spirit, in paragraph 13, is the principal agent in both establishing the kingdom of God and guiding the church. And the attention given to the role of the spirit means that TCV speaks of the living tradition of the church. In paragraphs 11 and 38, taking up, of course, paragraphs 8 and 12 of Dei Verbum, on Revelation from Vatican II. When I chaired the Church of Wales Standing Doctrinal Commission taking over from Stephen Oliver, I read through all the responses of the different churches to Towards a Common Vision, and I found it fascinating that the Church of Scotland, from a reformed position, spoke of its deep unease and its struggle with the term legitimate diversity. And I point that out, not to make a cheap point, but to say that when we move into the language of legitimate or reconciled diversity, it is not something that every tradition finds easy to accept, exactly the opposite. What I think TCV is able to affirm is a much looser cohesion with the main emphasis on missiology, evangelism, cultural diversity, and the work of the Spirit. Declaration on the Way, the American Lutheran Catholic document, speaks not of legitimate diversity, but of reconciled diversity. 
in the common acceptance of the joint statement on justification. It's important not to overstate this. Colonel Koch, head of the Pontifical Council for the Promotion of Christian Unity in the same year, rejected the Protestant desire for an ecumenism of difference. But in spite of Colonel Koch's views, Professor Wood and many others have written of the strengths and limitations of the idea of differentiated consensus, following, of course, on the work of the Roman Catholic 19th century ecclesiologist, Johann Möller. So, in view of the idea that perhaps from 2010, legitimate or reconciled diversity could be found in ecumenical texts, let me turn to walking together. And this, I think, is the final bit of my argument. Paragraph 9 refers to the rich diversity of communion, the church more truly Catholic, more truly universal in space and time. The task of ecumenism is not simply to bring about organic unity, it is that, of course, but it is to learn together what rich diversity can mean, and only together can that learning go on. Now, this is a striking and new development. How do you actually learn something? You do it by coming together and by realizing what you share together. That is the task of ecumenism. That is extraordinarily different from the ecclesial tone of a century ago, or perhaps even after Vatican II of 50 years ago. I suggest there has been a sea change. Paragraph 33 of Walking Together refers to the work of the Spirit. And if you know uh, the Church Towards Common Vision, and of course, Jean Gibault's work in bringing that, and then his work with the Anglican Communion, you are not surprised. The work of the Spirit creates diversity in the early church. Diversity, of course, can create conflict, and the diversity of the faith has to be carefully managed. Nevertheless, the growing diversity of culture, which the Gospel addresses in the biblical narratives, can be met by the diversity of the early church. It is a heavily missiological and pneumatological point that is being made in paragraph 33. So let me close quoting Walking Together from paragraph 148. The authority structures of the Anglican Communion make much more modest claims than do parallel Roman Catholic instruments. As a consequence, Anglicans live with judgments that are understood to be more provisional requiring to be tested and discerned by the census fidelium. Christians are confronted with new situations in evolving history. They have to discern whether new ways of life are in agreement with the gospel, and census fidelium plays an indispensable role in this process of discernment. It takes time before the church comes to a final judgment. The faithful at large, Theologians, bishops, all have their respective role to play. This requires that Catholics live with such provisionality and give latitude to those instruments which cannot give judgments to the highest authority. 
By learning to live with teaching that is improvable, space would be given to the testing and discernment of a proposed teaching. Now, what I want to suggest is that really is a sea change. Clearly, the issue here, very obviously, is how provisionality and diversity is both celebrated and yet kept in check. And paragraph 148 quotes Evangelii a Gaudium and an interview with Pope Francis. Receptive ecumenism plays its role here. So legitimate diversity and unity must be served by instruments of Catholicity. And that, I suggest, is the agenda for future Anglican-Roman Catholic relations. There are, I think, three issues. First of all, how does receptive ecumenism serve the agenda more fully? And as we move in the second part of Arctic 3 to discussing ethics, I think receptive ecumenism has much to teach us. Secondly, with a wonderful Anglican understatement, paragraph 125 says, Anglicans are concerned to ensure that the provinces remain doctrinally cohesive. Well, you could say that again. Um, and so, despite the great diversity of ecclesial life, what are the limits to diversity? We look forward to the Lambeth Conference next year and the discussions on sexuality. And Anglicans are indeed concerned about cohesiveness. Um, but in a culturally less and less homogenous world, the missiological and pneumatological questions press on us. And thirdly, how can the instruments of authority become more consensual? So that is my justification for why walking together is what it is. Let me just make some very quick responses to Professor Wood. Does the emphasis in walking together on the juridical and political threaten to eclipse the personal and representational? I don't think so. The official Catholic commentary says that by addressing the political and juridical, we can recognize a greater recognition of diversity, dialogue, and provisionality. Professor Wood rightly asks for an example of discernment at a particular level of the church. That will come in the second part of Archic 3 on ethics. I would disagree with Professor Wood on two points. Secondly, the relationship of local churches and universal. It is true that Colonels Casper and Ratzinger have agreed on this, but you only have to look at ecclesiologists such as John Zazulus or Miroslav Wolf in After Our Likeness to realize that the question about the relationship of the local and the universal remains very much an open question. And that is why walking together raises questions. Anglicans, again, would only use the term universal church to refer to the mystical body of Christ. What Catholics mean by universal is expressed by the Anglican term worldwide, hence worldwide stroke universal. Two points, then, where I would disagree with Professor Wood, and finally two where I would agree strongly. First, we do need more reference to the work of regional dialogues. I was a member of English ARC, Anglican Roman Catholic, for several years, 
and dialogue certainly took place there. And most of all, I welcome her stress on the acknowledgement of ministry, a more nuanced way of recognition of ministry. The only thing I would note is that Colonel Casper's rejection of the Synodal Episcopal Office as a creation of modernity means that we are not yet out of the woods. There are still deep questions. So, a few last comments. Anglican-Catholic relationship in the future will, I believe, be marked by much greater plurality and diversity across the globe with the process of discernment being crucial. How and where that process is exercised also matters. In all of this, the role of receptive ecumenism is crucially important, for it shows how each communion can receive new insights. The future will certainly be turbulent, but it is also full of promise as the Spirit leads us to walking together on the way together. So my argument is that walking together actually marks a new stage in Anglican-Roman Catholic relations because it echoes a new era of ecumenical relations which the Church towards a common vision itself inaugurated. Thank you very much.